Hi, I'm Anne-Marie Ingtov Larson. And I'm James Bray. And this is the World Economic Forum's podcast, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Here's the kind of big question we really like to dwell on at the forum. If education is meant to prepare us for the future, how should it deal with the looming revolution? Put another way, if you think the next 50 years are going to amount to the most radical social and economic change since the invention of the factory... Which, to be clear, we do. Right. And if you think that, then it probably follows that we need to rethink what we teach the next generation. And in case it wasn't obvious, the problem is urgent. Well, we don't have 20 years. I mean, I... I feel this incredible sense of urgency. I mean, it's why I travel all the time. It's why I'm doing this instead of just hanging out with my wife, having a good time um, is I don't think we have anywhere close to 20 years. And we're already seeing that in our country where civil society is beginning to fracture. That is Ted Dintersmith, who spent most of his career in venture capital, but has lately turned to education philanthropy. Now he's on a mission to improve public schooling in the USA. You know, I, I started... Five years ago, I would say to my friends, you know, kind of in private settings, that if we don't change schools in a profound way with some degree of urgency, I don't believe civil society will hang together. I would say that just as much in the UK or any any developed country as I would say about the US. And five years ago, people thought that that was pretty extreme. You know, like, like the reaction they had to me was the same as if you're walking down the street and somebody with a beard is holding up a sign saying the end of days are near. You know, I've said that probably in my last hundred public talks, and nobody's gotten up from the audience and saying, you know, said to me, you're, you know, you're dead wrong about that. Ted got so concerned about the state of education in the US that he co-authored a book and financed a film called Most Likely to Succeed, which documents the goings-on at High Tech High, a school in San Diego where they approach education in a very different way. Now he's traveling all over America in search of pockets of best practice in his bid to get the public school system to start upping its game. For him, the stakes are high. I had traveled to all 50 states during the election. I had visited all of these communities. I met with so many people that in one way, shape or form told me I trusted school to give me an advantage in life. I'm trusting school to help my kids. But guess what? All I'm sitting, all I'm doing is working in a minimum wage job with a lot of student loan debt, or I got laid off and I have no way to to get myself back on my feet, or my salary is actually lower than it was ten years ago, and I'm working more and more hours, and, and you know you you feel alienated, you feel let down, you feel anger, and and, and I think deservedly so, because we've told kids, we've told families. Push your kids to a school process where, you know, you're spending all of your time on content that you don't care about, you won't retain, and even if you retain it, you'll never use. But it's convenient for us to rank you. Ted is just one of an army of would-be reformers who thinks something is badly amiss in the education ecosystem. So what exactly seems to be the problem? Educationalist Sugata Mitra won the TED Prize in 2013 for his vision of a self-organized learning environment, a school in the cloud, as he calls it. He has been arguing for a radical rethink of schools for some time. Let me see how to put this. I guess what we understand by education is that there is a certain body of knowledge out there 
which we need to somehow introduce or put into a young mind. Another way to look at this, the traditional way of looking at education, is that your head is an empty suitcase in which we pack things for about 17 years of your life. The first 17 years and then the assumption is that you can now go on the rest of your life, the journey of life, using that suitcase and whatever you need will be put in it. That assumption is no longer true because it implies that the world will remain the way it was at the time when your suitcase was packed. Since we know that that's no longer true, that the world changes not in periods of hundreds of years, but in periods of ones or twos of years, we need a different education. I think I look at, and what I have been looking at, or what I have really bumped into, is that there is a new way of learning which enables us to understand and learn things when we need to learn them. This was not so earlier. And hence, the need to have a whole lot of things already learned and then used at that point of time in a world where this is no longer required. Because when you need to know something, you can know it at the point of need. Obviously, our education system has to head towards how do you access what you want to learn and how do you learn it as quickly as possible at that point of need. How indeed. And guess what? There are lots of answers to that question. I've spoken to tons of educationalists for this episode, and there is actually quite a lot of agreement about what education might mean to the citizens of the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Most discussions of academic excellence turn, at some stage, to Finland, a country that has long been associated with the bleeding edge of innovation in education. So, who better to ask for a vision of our near future than Finnish educationalist and, dare I say, guru, Tassi Salberg? Well, my, my guess would be that we will move towards a school where there will be significantly less time spent on traditional classrooms and subjects as as we know them now, namely history, foreign languages, mathematics, science. I think this is this is something that will gradually decrease. And this is what, what we can see now in a in a most most innovative schools uh, around the world or systems like like here in Finland that we have this kind of a soft movement to move away from or reduce the the role of uh, teaching separate subjects. So that's that's certainly one thing. I and this will be this will be probably in 20 years time will be replaced by a couple of things. One of them might be, um, although I do not think that this this will be probably the, the major consequence of of this. Uh, what I said earlier is that the again that the technology will be used as a source and means of you know learning learning some of the stuff or material that was previously done by teachers, particularly some parts of the more routine uh, learning where you don't really you don't really need a teacher standing in a classroom but then what, what I see very clearly coming and I hope it happens is that there will be much more time spent in school around individualized or personalized um, t- tasks uh, preferably built around small teams working on 
real problems in their lives or in their communities or in, in, in the world. Sometimes I, I kind of try to vision my own, own idea of the school 20 years from now that would look like, you know, having a morning, morning spent on more conventional or traditional classes, maybe two or three classes of something that we really need to teach everybody to make sure that we are, everybody's on board. And then after lunch or after, after break uh, during the day, in the, in the afternoon, that, that would look like more like workshops or in individual personalized learning kids, you know, doing their own projects and uh, or learning in the community or maybe in another in another institution something like this. But you know, this whole whole form of children coming to school in the morning and leaving in the evening and taking classes uh, with or without technology, I think that that will gradually change. If there's one maxim I've heard a lot during my interviews for this whole series, it is this. The future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. By which people mean, just because you haven't seen it yet, there's probably already an example of the future somewhere in the world. And by somewhere in the world, they very often mean Silicon Valley. And, surprise, surprise, there are definitely schools there that have shades of Pasi Shelberg's vision. At the helm of one such school is Brittany Beer, CEO of 42 Silicon Valley, a programming school. Yes. So how the 42 program works is, as I said, there's no teachers, there's no lectures, and there's no classes. Yeah, probably worth repeating that. No teachers, no lectures, and no classes. Definitely doesn't remind me of my school. The idea is that rather than having this one person in front of a student that is transmitting the knowledge vertically, each individual is going to become a source of knowledge for their colleagues around them. For this, it's a lot like when you go into the job force and either you're a supervisor, you're a boss, or you're an entrepreneur and you're starting your own business. You're not necessarily going to have an individual that has more knowledge than you at your particular establishment. When you have a question or when you come across a problem, you are going to need to have the skills necessary to be able to go out and seek out the solutions of your own to develop new things to know what your problem is, and to begin developing steps and going out and searching for that information as to how you're going to resolve the problem. Right from the start, our students are learning how to do that on a daily basis with the peer-to-peer learning, with project-based learning. They're confronted with a project. We give them very little information as to how to resolve that project because we want them to be able to go out and experiment, to explore that environment, and to come up with their own ideas rather than giving them a pre-written solution and just seeing them mimic that. This is just one of a bunch of places that are looking to teach through projects rather than subjects, and where the emphasis is on learning by doing stuff and learning from your peers rather than from a teacher. Basically, the idea is that you ditch the model of teaching a traditional subject in the abstract. Instead, you give kids a problem to solve. You give them access to all the information they need, and then help them to go and learn whatever is necessary to solve the problem. And you don't need to go to Silicon Valley to find examples of this. You can find them in Chile and in Denmark, India, and indeed the town nowadays more commonly associated with murderous black comedy, Fargo. So I visit an eighth grade school. Most kids in their history class are memorizing facts or definitions or low-level tidbits. And through their history classes, when you ask them what they learned, they say, I learned I never want to take history again. We don't teach them to think like an historian. We teach them to memorize you know, a bunch of content they don't retain. Eighth grade class in Fargo, to their credit, they, they sort of said to the students, what's something 
involving history that you'd find interesting. Students and teachers work together and they say, why don't we capture the story of historic buildings in downtown Fargo? They then trust the uh, students and the teachers who are, who are all in on this, but they trust them to define an experience. So they say, why don't we capture the history of historic buildings? They have to define, eighth graders have to define what constitutes an historic building. They say, how do we capture it? They think maybe we do essays. They start interviewing people, going to doing the research, visiting the buildings. One of them says, why don't we do a slideshow? Somebody else says, why don't we do short documentaries? They reach a conclusion, collaborate together to say, let's do short documentaries. Somebody else says, well, why don't we put QR codes on each building so that somebody that passes the building could just put their smartphone on it and see our documentary? They do that. Somebody else says, why don't we do a public exhibition and invite the mayor and the town council and parents and teachers and everybody across Fargo to see what we do? They did that. As a model of learning, this is much closer to what you are likely to actually encounter in the real world, where your problem, unlike in school exams, is very rarely going to be remembering some piece of knowledge and where your nearest teacher is likely to be on YouTube. Sylvian Kalesh is co-founder of the Halperton School of Software Engineering, just a short drive away from 42 Silicon Valley. You know, like a few centuries ago, um, the only way to get an education was to travel long distance and go to, uh, you know, monasteries um, to access the library and listen to monks. Uh, but since then, um, like the greatest library that, you know, ever existed, um, you know, has been created, it's uh, called the internet. So, you know, what used to be an issue, which was access to, um, to knowledge, uh, is no longer an issue, right? Like now you have access to, um, you know, all the information you need and more than you need, uh, you know, at at your finger touch and and but but ironically um, you know schools and universities and colleges hasn't evolved uh, they still try uh, you know to act as a gateway between knowledge and students when now the, the skills of students is more about navigating this ocean of information being able to see wrong information or incomplete information and then um, use their problem solving skills uh, critical thinking and creativity you know, to use this information to come up with solution to the challenges they are trying to, to attack. And I, I believe that, uh, you know, education should uh, evolve in this, in this sense. He and his co-founders gave up their jobs to found Holperton, which points to another trend of the 4IR education. There's probably going to be a pretty strong demand for the technical skill set. As a software engineer, I was interviewing Uh, you know, multiple uh, candidates every week, right? And I did this for, so, you know, like three years at LinkedIn and like one year at SlideShare. And one pattern that I identified is, um, you know, people who studied half a decade of their life, you know, coming out of universities, um, some of them with hundreds of thousands dollars of debt, and they were not ready to take on a job. And, you know, like you could see they, like they, they had an education, but like definitely like not what we were looking for. And I knew about um, alternative education methodology that's now training roughly about 50% of software engineers in France. Like he's training talent um, that, you know, is like everywhere in Silicon Valley. Um, like, you know, working for the best companies, uh, you know, Google, like Facebook, Lyft, Uber, like you, you name it. And, and with my, uh, at the time, friend, um, You know, he was working for Docker, uh, which is like this billion-dollar company. And it was the same for, for him. It, it was like a couple of years we were thinking about it. 
Um, so my co-founder and I, um, one of our specialties to uh, create software engineer communities. And we, we knew that there were something to do, you know, at the intersection of community and education. Uh, while, you know, like basically providing this education to the most without the, like the prohibitive cost of education that is in the U.S. So we, we decided to quit our job and and um, and to fund Halberton School. And our, our, our mission, our, our vision is to provide high quality education to the most. Sylvain's story is the kind of story that 4IR optimists hope will characterise the age creative and fearless entrepreneurs embracing the future with new business models, populations shrugging off the spectre of mass technological unemployment through endless ingenuity and a restless entrepreneurial mindset. Maybe education can help with that. I think that this model is very encouraging for somebody who is an entrepreneur who seeks to do that because in entrepreneurship, you're going to have a lot of time. So you're going to try something and you're going to fail. And many of these small businesses will eventually fail, but they need to be able to pick themselves back up and to try something again, try something new, experiment. Here at 42, we're preparing them for that environment where they're going to go and try something. It's not going to work, but they're going to try something else and it will work. Anybody who is responsible for policies or designing education systems or or reforms should be thinking and asking herself or himself that, you know, what should we do? What would the the policy or system look like that would prepare more creators for the labor markets? In other words, that they would go uh, with with the kind of attitude that if I cannot find a job, I can I can always create one. And the technology that that these people will have at their disposal is as something that has never been uh, possible before. So you can you can create a lot of things, new jobs and or future for yourself by just having this kind of attitude or mindset that I can, I'm, I'm, if, I, if I cannot find a job from somebody else, I'm not going to go to unemployment office and sign in and wait for the benefits, but I'm, I'm going to team up with some other people and, and create something new. And, uh, you know, we have done that a little bit in some countries, calling it uh, entrepreneurship education, or entrepreneurial learning. But I, I think that this should be a part of the, edu- you know, any graduate, anybody who is leaving whatever school system they are, are departing with this type of uh, attitude that, uh, that we can, I can always create a job for myself and maybe some other people. I say start with any four-year-old. You know, they're bold, they're curious, they ask a million questions, they think outside of the box, they don't feel failure. They have the precise character traits you want to see in an adult in the world of innovation. And if we just didn't crush that out of them, and if school actually encouraged them to make the most of the productivity advances of machine intelligence instead of, instead of struggling to replicate it, these kids could do amazing things. I mean, they can create all sorts of paths forward for themselves and find great ways to make their world better. Of course, the future of state education, like the present of state education, isn't only about preparing children for the labour market. Schools are where we learn social norms and imbibe our shared history, where we learn the fundamentals of citizenship, at least in theory. They aren't just feeding streams for industry or exam machines. This, of course, is an old debate and seems unlikely to die out in the fourth industrial revolution. And that explains why educational tech is blowing up. There's a whole generation of entrepreneurs who have seen an opportunity to use technology to deliver new lessons in new ways, rushing nimbly into the spaces where state systems feed a threat. 
One of the pioneers was Fab Nivy, who ditched his job as a teacher to found Grocket, an exam prep platform. His story has become famous since it was included as a case study in Eric Ries's hugely popular lean startup book, required reading for anyone entering startup land these days. Before that, I was uh, an educator, uh, mostly at private institutes like the Princeton Review or Kaplan. Uh, I was a teacher, uh, and then I became a you know curriculum developer and a teacher trainer and a teacher trainer trainer. I actually ended up employing a style of teaching in my class uh, that's social learning, which is a students learning from students. And <clears throat> interestingly enough, this is, at least uh, in the States, the way it was done a long, long time ago, when you think of the uh, little school- schoolhouse on the prairie, the situation was actually, you know, you had a classroom, uh, you might have one student in this grade, two students, a couple of grades up, uh, three students in the next grade, uh, then no students for several grades, and one high schooler. Uh, and that's the, that's the whole schoolhouse. It's, you know, half a dozen or a dozen kids all in various grades. Uh, and obviously, a teacher cannot teach, you know, six different uh, grades simultaneously, and they didn't. You know, what, what happened was that the older students taught the younger students, and the teacher facilitated the process. Um, and it it's a really magical thing when you do that. And this is what I did in my classroom. And what we were able to show, you know, quite definitively, in fact, we, we published a paper on it, was that when students uh, teach each other, uh, there's a really interesting phenomenon. The smart kids get smarter. Uh, the not as smart kids get smarter. Everyone gets smarter when students are, are, are teaching each other. And to some extent, as you can imagine, uh, you know, if, if you were teaching reading and writing and math, uh, your whole life growing up, how could you end up in high school and not know how to do it? Um, you've been teaching it for several years. Uh, so that's what inspired Grocket is bringing that social learning uh, and using machine learning uh, and technology to connect students all over the world, not just in my classroom, and then support their, their interaction using machine learning. Fab's story is famous, but his is only one example of a definite trend that a lot of people are excited about. Platforms designed to blend offline teaching styles with online tools to create powerful new ways to learn just about anything. It's like a chat room. Uh, two students or several students are in a chat room together, uh, say, working, working on math questions. Uh, they get to answer individually, and then they get to see the answer, and then they get to chat. And there's different ways you, know, you might have been able to chat before you answered. Uh, so you're essentially... Uh, working on questions together, helping each other uh, answer them and scoring points if you get them correctly. But that, that's the basic premise. And then based on whether or not you were answering correctly, uh, the system learns and tries to keep you in what is called the zone of proximal development, where uh, things aren't too challenging and they're not too easy. I think uh, it helped validate the idea that social learning is a better paradigm. I think the challenge is uh, to, you know, switch everybody's mental model. You know, there's a, I don't know, have a million plus teachers uh, in the country uh, teaching in pretty similar ways. Uh, getting everybody to start running their classrooms that way is easier said than done. Uh, it's not as simple as, you know, turning the students on each other to, and, and that's it. Uh, there's a lot of facilitation that has to go on and it has to be done 
differently for the different things that you're teaching people. So uh, that would be a lot of work. But um, I think that's where technology can potentially come into play. Uh, you know, building systems and technologies that students can, uh, you know, use at home where they're more likely to have technology than they are in school. Still, it's a challenge for uh, a lot of students that uh, don't have the means, but uh, technologies that students can use. And, and Grokit was actually one of those. We, we, we created programs with schools so that their students could sort of extend the school day at home using technology. I think that's, that, that's a great opportunity is to, you know, use technologies that do the student-to-student the -student facilitation for you so you don't necessarily have to relearn in a whole new style of educating uh, and, and supplement your, you know, existing systems with texts that foster collaborative learning. While technology raises some barriers, of course, it lowers others. You probably need a degree to get a job as a data scientist, but to build a world-changing business, the barriers have never been lower. And educational technology is really a big part of this. The fact that people can become competent software developers uh, while sitting at home on a laptop and then getting a job uh, that takes them from, you know, you, you don't literally need a high school degree to uh, learn how to write software and have the skill set that earns you a six-figure salary. Uh, you can you can learn how to build apps uh, and more than just get a job, you can now build actual technologies that can change the world from the things that you learned at home uh, and the things that you built at home, which if you talk about industrial revolution, when you think of uh, a Henry Ford uh, building a factory, all of the capital needed and the time and resources for him to create and make something technological that can change the world, you can now actually close that loop from learning the very means of creating the technology and then creating the technology all from your bedroom, uh, all within a year, if you're willing to put the time and energy into it. So that to me is, you know, uh, a transformative type of revolution, maybe, maybe bigger than the step that Henry Ford experienced. I can sense some listeners wondering how much Kool-Aid we've drunk here. It's definitely worth noting that as with every episode of this series, new technology is a problem as well as an opportunity in education. For instance, I think the next five years will have one interesting development. Our access to the internet will become invisible. At this point in time, you can figure out that someone is looking at or referring to the internet by looking at them. He's staring at his phone or he's taken it out of his pocket. You know that he's consulting the internet. I think that situation will change in the next five years to some form of device or interface where it will no longer be possible to tell whether a person is referring to the internet or not. What you're hearing could be my voice speaking live or it could be possibly a feed from a website which I've just turned on and then we're just sitting here and listening to it. That situation will come very quickly. When that happens, when internet access becomes invisible and undetectable, then the entire examination system and therefore the rest of the formal education system will literally collapse. This has to happen. So we have an option. Okay, we have an option. 
we can either prepare for that situation where internet access is available to everybody at all time and we can swap it or we could have a confrontation with students about whether they're using the internet or not. I think that confrontation will be a pointless exercise. If education is really going to be revolutionised with a capital R, it might well be through artificial intelligence. Talk to AI experts about where the greatest promise for humanity lies from deploying AI, and education is likely to feature. Jeremy Howard is a deep learning expert and founder of Fast.ai. Um, there's an area called adaptive learning, which refers to the idea of how basically it doesn't really make any sense to teach you know, dozens of people at a time, whether they be kids or adults, the same material at the same speed, taught in the same way. Uh, everybody learns differently. Everybody has different backgrounds. And so in any class, you'll find most people who either find it going too fast and they don't get it or too slow and they're bored. So with adaptive learning, uh, a computer-based system can figure out at every moment what's what's the specific thing I should be teaching you next and how should I teach it and what problems should I ask in order to maximize the feedback and learning and so forth. And so that would that would kind of be like every student having a brilliant individualized tutor just for themselves. That is, uh, in terms of timescale, that's presumably quite a futuristic vision. No, I don't see why it should be. The thing we're missing there is the data. With the kind of stuff that is coming out of things like Khan Academy, some of the data is starting to appear. But there just isn't a um, culture, I guess, of creating individualized learning and then, and then tracking it rigorously and to give us the data to kind of feed into the machine learning algorithms. So there's no great technology challenge. It's just a culture and data capture challenge at this point. So what's the bottom line here? Do we have a bottom line? Well, it's nearly the end of the podcast. True. Well, the forum is a wonderful place, but we don't have a crystal ball. The whole premise of this series is that we're about to see epic social change. And education is no exception. In the first industrial revolution, the world saw an explosion of educational efforts as society scrabbled to catch up with social change and find ways to prepare people for the brave new world that was being built. Many aspects of the state systems we built 150 years ago aren't all that different today. But it looks like that won't be true for much longer. You've been listening to Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution with me, James Bray. And me, Anne-Marie Larson. Thank you for listening. Join us for the next episode, where we will look at the technologies that promise to take us into the post-human era, for good or, as many think, for ill. And if you want to know more about this topic, check out the World Economic Forum's new book, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution. The book is designed to give clarity to how all these exciting new technologies impact all aspects of society and empower you to engage personally in this unfolding revolution. You can buy the book on Amazon.